So chapter 10, kind of what we looked at last week, starts off with this beautiful picture of uh, what is described in verse number one as a mighty angel. All right. In Greek, it's the angelos iskaron. It's the only time in the New Testament that those words are used of an angel. And we kind of did a little background work last week. Theories, different theories about who that angel is. Some go all the way as far as to say, well, we think that's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I don't. Uh, I look at that angel as a reflection of, of God. And of course, the, the angel is, is always, in the Bible, a messenger. So I'm bringing you a messenger. I always thought about this, uh, the mighty angel. So um, I was kind of laughing about this last week, looking at this. You know, this, this is what I call kind of the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger angel, right? That's, that's what he, Remember when Arnold was the governor of California? Remember that? <clears throat> that's a bad idea, making Arnold the governor. <clears throat> but anyway, <clears throat> one time they had this crisis going on in California. <clears throat> Fires were going on. And they wanted to basically kind of pin him down and make him look bad. You know, kind of like, well, you should have thought about this beforehand. And this. So this little reporter, she's about, you know, like four feet tall, and he's standing over her, and she's going to try to, and she's like, well, you should have done this, and you should have done that. And Arnold looks at her and goes, no, you are wrong. <laughs> and, I, and I'm like, yep, that did it. <laughs> yeah. So the mighty angel is coming down. Some of the, some of the pictures, you know, that you're looking at, the, all of them are symbolic. Notice that this mighty angel has a rainbow over his head. So what he's, what he's doing is he's bringing a promise. Put this back into context. What chapter 10 is, is a kind of what we call one of the interludes in the book of Revelation. So remember that the book of Revelation looks like this. One circle, two circle, three circle, four circle, five circle, six circle, seven circles. Okay. So each circle kind of represents time. Beginning, beginning with the advent of, of Jesus Christ, we kind of circle around and look at history, what's going to go on in history, up until we get to the top of the circle again, into the world. Okay? So we repeat that, that cycle seven times. It's almost like the same subject. You've got Jesus Christ here. He says, I'm going to show you what's going to happen in history prior to, the, to my coming, and I'm going to do that seven times. Okay? Now, once you, when you get into these circles and you start listening to what's going to happen on planet Earth during these last days, you cannot help it as a human being. You listen to what's going on and everything inside of you wants to say, stop, God, stop. It's too much. It's too much. It's too much for my mind to, to even uh, uh, absorb, right? And so guess what? He does, stops, okay? And what we've seen is, he goes to the seven letters. That's that first cycle. And then he stops. And he says, okay, John, what I've shown you is pretty tough. So come on up here. And every time he stops, the purpose of stopping the, these interludes is to remind John, as bad as things look, remember, 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 I am in control. Okay? Second, second circle, the six seals. Right? And then at the end of the six seals, guess what? He goes, stop. Before I show you the seventh seal, come on up here, take a look. Notice I am in control. And John needs that. He needs to just stop and hear those words. I am in control. Same thing with what's going on right now. What we've done is we're in that third circle. And so the third circle is marked by what? The blowing of seven trumpets. So you get to the sixth trumpet and what happens? Stop. 
John, come on up here. Watch what I'm doing because I am in control. So this interlude goes from chapter 10 to the, about the middle of chapter 11, and it consists of these two parts. The first part is this mighty angel who comes. When you see the angel, it has the rainbow over its head, signifying this is about what? A promise. A promise that I have made to you. Okay? The face of the angel is like the sun. It reflects who Jesus Christ is. And then remember, the legs of the angel are like pillars of fire. If you kind of put it all together, this is a promise. Remember where we see pillars of fire in the Old Testament, book of Exodus? And what's going on is God is leading his people out of this wilderness, broken desert, into the promised land. So when you start to put it all together, the angel is really meant to come and to say to, say to John, John, these seven trumpets represent these horrible things that are happening on planet Earth that will culminate with what? With me leading my people out of this earth and into the new earth, into the new promised land. That's, that's kind of the message underneath this whole thing, okay? So we're right in the midst of it and just kind of picture John who's watching this scene unfold uh, before him. He says when he looks at the angel, the angel has just a little scroll, a small scroll in his hand. And last week we said that small scroll is meant to do what? It's meant to represent a specific period of time. So this angel is saying during this, this little period of time, what we call the half a time, I am fully in control. Uh, John, don't worry about that. He hears the voice of the angel cry out. And this is kind of where I want to pick up this morning. It's kind of interesting uh, how he describes uh, this verse. He says, uh, when he called out, this is verse 3, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. The seven thunders sounded. And when the th seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. This is kind of interesting. If I am uh, in the crowd and I'm listening to, to this letter being read for the first time, okay, here we are all these years later. But if I if put yourself in those shoes, I'm, I'm someone in a church back in the first century. And this scroll comes and you know, the pastor says, everybody gather together. We've got a letter from John. And we open up this letter and we hear it read. And that's how Revelation would have been given to the church. It would have been read out loud to the congregation. When I hear this, all right, I saw a mighty angel, his face like the sun, uh, a, a rainbow over his head, his legs like pillars of fire. All right, I'm already thinking about, about the, those pillars of fire and what it means to go into a new land. Then I hear these words, his voice sounded like the seven thunders. Okay. If I'm a Jew and I know my Old Testament, immediately I go back to where I see those seven thunders. Okay. There's one place in the Old Testament and then interestingly, another place in the New Testament that kind of capture what it means to say that the angel's voice sounded like seven thunders okay let's take a look at the first one the first one you're going to find in the psalms so psalm 29 flip over to that middle of your bible psalm 29 
and you get a little bit of background on what what it means to hear these this thunder verse thunder voice coming at you okay psalm 29 i'm going to read through it and here's your job as you as i go through this you kind of think about what the psalm is saying but i want you to count the number of thunders all right count the number of thunders here's what the psalmist writes this is this is uh, thousands of years before john writes the revelation ascribe to the lord o heavenly beings ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord glory do his name worship the lord and the splendor of his holiness now notice that uh, those words are addressed to angels okay ascribe to the lord o heavenly beings angels always ascribe glory to the lord and david is simply recognizing that he says the voice of the lord is over the waters the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. Okay? Did you catch that? Thunder there? Okay? The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. Okay? Here's what I want you to count. The number of times the word voice is used. Here we've heard that we hear the voice of God and it is like what? Thunder. Okay? Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare, and in his temple all cry, Glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. How many voices? Seven. Okay, interesting. That thousands of years before John writes this, there's this sense that the voice of the Lord is like thunder. And the seven thunders that John is talking about in the Revelation are really what? Kind of like a reverberated voice, like a And you hear that voice uh, already at creation. Did you notice that? Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. That same voice is the voice that crushes his enemies. You notice that in verse 5 and 6. He breaks the cedars, the cedars of Lebanon, Israel's enemy. I can take your cedar trees and smash them. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. By the way, both of those refer to mountain ranges. I could take a mountain range and make it skip away like a little calf. I'm strong. That's who I am. I'm God. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. He shakes the wilderness of Kadesh, causes the deer to give birth, strips the forests, and so all of his temples cry out, God, you are present. And so really the seven thunders are meant to say that, that God is fully present here, that the angel is simply his messenger. When he speaks, you're hearing the voice of God. Another interesting um, 
place where you find this idea of the, the thunder voice of God is in the New Testament. And if you flip over with me to the 12th chapter of John. John chapter 12. This is kind of cool. A lot of people forget this scene, but it's really a, a neat scene. Okay. Go to verse 27. This is, this is just at that point in time where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We always refer to this section of the New Testament as the kind of the Palm Sunday story. And uh, we all know the story of the, the palms and Hosanna and that, but there's some words that come out of this story that a lot of people forget. So go to verse 27 and just kind of look at what, what Jesus is talking about as he comes into Jerusalem. He says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Kind of uh, reminiscent of Jesus, you know, when he's uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. Reminiscent of, God, of Jesus when he says, Father, must I drink of this cup? Yes, I must. I came for this hour. Now look at what happens. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I have glorified my name, he's saying. And I will glorify it again. Now look at this. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. So the people that heard God speak that day, if you would have, if you would have interviewed them for the Channel 8 Eyewitness News, would have said, um, hey, what was going on there? Did, did you hear Jesus speak? Yeah, I did hear him speak. And then I heard this thunder. Now, others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered them. And I think this is kind of an interesting thing. He says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Isn't that kind of interesting? This voice came for your sake, not for mine. Same thing with John. The thunder voice, the voice of God, is a voice to assure him. And it's meant for John, and it's meant for you, and it's meant for me to say that the God who thundered and spoke one word and all of creation came into being, he's in control today. Do not doubt him. Even when you see the worst of the worst of, of things that will happen in history, do not doubt him. This is kind of, I'm going to finish this section out because it's kind of interesting. Look at verse 31. It says, now the judgment, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Kind of take you to that place as he's going into to Jerusalem. And he's saying, the ruler of this world. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 beginning verse 8 talks about who is the ruler of this uranus, this cosmos, is the fallen one who was cast down into it. He's a ruler in it, a prince, not a king. But he says, now as I go to the cross, this ruler will be cast out. Will he be cast out? No. When will he be cast out? On judgment day, once and for all. So you have one of what is called the, the famous now and not yets of scripture, right? Today I can say, is Satan cast out of this world? Yes and no. He's still in it, but he's defeated 
already defeated by that cross. And so on Judgment Day is simply the final casting out of the enemy. I think it's really cool that on Palm Sunday, when everybody's going like, hey, save us, save us, you know, Jesus is saying, I will. But it's not that kind of salvation. It's not salvation from the Romans. It's not the reestablishment of, of, of the Jewish, you know, temple. It's not a recreation of Solomon or David's reign. I will save you from your sins on a cross, and I will cast the enemy out. Where I'm taking you to is to this new land, a new earth. And already at Jerusalem, when Jesus is being crucified, you hear the thunder voice of God. And so John, when he hears it, come back over to the Revelation. John, when he hears it, the seven thunders, immediately knows, okay, this is the voice that, that created the world. This is the voice that said, I will cast the enemy out. And so there's a little symbolism in it as John listens to God speak. And now God speaks something to him. And I want you guys to hear this. God speaks something to him. And then he says something that you, you just don't, you don't hear in the Bible except here. He says, don't write it down. Whatever the seven thunder verses voices said to John on that day in that moment God said to him do not write it down why you know I've always we don't have a by the way we don't have like a theologically genius answer to that question but I've always believed this there are things about the end that God does not want us to know and I, I, I like the, the fact that when you read the Bible, one of the things you, you realize is that it does, not, it does not tell you everything that's going to happen. And the, the, the purpose of that is we follow a God who simply says what? Trust me. Trust me in this. And so we don't know exactly what John heard on that day, but he says, I don't want you to write this down. Uh, these are for your ears, John. And, and I believe that whatever God said to him in that moment really was meant to do uh, what, what John needed in that moment. It, it was meant to, to comfort John. You know, we can read these words, and they have impact on us. They do. But remember, John is receiving this in a vision. He's seeing it. He is seeing it. And when you watch this destruction going on in the world, everything inside of you turns upside down. And I believe what, what's happening in that moment is God is saying, John, be comforted. Just be comforted. As, as mighty this mighty angel is, I am more mighty. I am the God of creation itself. I know what I'm doing. I'm leading you into <clears throat> a new land. And so John uh, does not write it down. Verse 5. The angel who I saw on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call, to be sounded by the seventh angel, interesting word here, the mysterion of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Okay. I kind of like that, that, that word in the middle of this thing. So there's this, this scene of, I am going to take an oath. I raise my, my right hand. Okay. And what I'm saying is, the one who made it all 
has something to say to you that he is making a, a promise of. What's the promise? That there will be no more delay. But that when the seventh trumpet is sounded, he will fulfill the promise that he spoke already all the way back in Genesis 3. And the promise in Genesis 3 is about restoration. First, the first restoration is the restoration of man with God through a cross. But the second restoration that happens is the restoration of all of creation. And when you hear that word mysterion, the Hebrew equivalent of it is Shekinah. It's really talking about the very presence of God. And what he's pointing, John 2, is when the end comes and the new earth is made, God will be present with man and will live amongst them. And that is when the mystery will be fulfilled, just as he has announced to the prophets, and the prophets have spoken to you. Verse 8, Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, this is a fun section, Go take the scroll that is now open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land. So I went to the angel, and I told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel, and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Okay. Um, Old Testament. Flip with me over to the book of Ezekiel. All right. Ezekiel. And we're going to go over to uh, just chapter 1 of Ezekiel. And as weird as it sounds for us to think about eating a scroll... <laughs> What's for lunch today? This is not the first time that we see this, right? Kind of follow along with me. I'll move through this fairly quickly, but I just want you to see it. This is the 30th year, the fourth month, the fifth day of the month, and uh, you have Ezekiel, who is amongst the exiles by the Shabar Canal. He says, the heavens were opened up. I saw visions of God on the fifth day of the month. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Bazi, in the land of Chaldeans by the Shabar Canal. The hand of the Lord was upon him. As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashing forth continuously, and in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming like metal, four living creatures, okay? So Ezekiel kind of takes us back to this period where you have um, Israel stuck in captivity, okay? So it, it relates to the revelation in a pretty cool way that just like in the last times you find yourself in this wilderness of earth and I will rescue you out of it so Israel is in exile and I will rescue my people out of it okay uh, so what Ezekiel is getting is this again this kind of 
beautiful vision. Go to chapter 2. And he said to me, this is kind of interesting, Ezekiel is, is referred to in the Old Testament as the son of man. If you remember with me, Jesus' favorite self-title when he refers to himself, always refers to himself as what? Son of man, okay? So he said, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And he spoke to me and the spirit entered into me and he set me on my feet and I heard him speaking to me and he said, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, the nation of rebels who have rebelled against me, they and their fathers, the descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, okay? So Ezekiel is, is sent out uh, to go and speak the word of God to uh, Israel. Go to chapter 3, very beginning. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Okay? So when you're hearing this in the Revelation, here's, here's John, and we're closing out this, this first scene. He says, John, I want you to do what Ezekiel did in his time when he was getting ready to speak to the the word of God to the, the people of Israel, to the rebels of Israel. I want you to take, take this scroll and eat it. Well, what is that scroll? It's this little scroll, right? It's this little scroll that's in the hand of the angel, and it represents what God is getting ready to do in this last time. He eats it, and the first thing I want you to notice is it is sweet as honey, just like in Ezekiel's mouth. Why is it sweet? It's the word of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the promise that was made that I will build my church and not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against it. That's sweet. That's beautiful words. But as he eats it, it becomes bitter in his stomach. Why does it become bitter? The answer is in the very last words that the angel speaks to John. Flip back over there. Here's why it's bitter. Go back to verse 10. I took this little scroll. I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again. Here's why it's bitter. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations, and languages, and kings. The sweetness is, when we take the gospel out into the world, you have people who receive that gospel, who are converted, and who you watch become followers of Jesus Christ, and you're able to say, they will be with Jesus Christ for eternity. Okay? So for, for me, this last week, you know, being able to go into the, the prison, and um, I got to tell you guys this because it's just it's it is so beautiful to me, um, you know. Mo and and Jerry and Eddie go in and um, 
take this DVD from this class in each week. And I was so moved to walk into that prison and uh, into that cell block. And those guys walk in um, with their Bibles just hungry to hear the Word of God. It just is a beautiful, beautiful thing. We want to know more about this Jesus Christ. To have people who were, were ready to say uh, this week, we want to be baptized into this Jesus Christ. Uh, to listen to stories of people who are able to say, yes, I'm, I'm, my life is changing because of, of him. Just beautiful. Be That's honey. That is beautiful stuff. Okay? So what he's saying is, John, you're going to go out with my gospel. He's saying to us as a church, go out with my gospel. There's nothing more rewarding in your life than when you get to just be that tool. And that's all we are. That tool that, that God uses to bring his gospel that brings life to someone else. Okay? It's one of my big questions that I always ask Christians. And I, I don't, don't raise your hand or anything, but just ask yourself this question. Have you ever had that privilege of being used by Jesus Christ, by God, to bring another person to faith? Have you ever experienced that? No, you don't have to raise your hand or say anything. And uh, I've, I've just got to say this to you, that so many Christians over my, my lifetime have said to me, well, I've never had that. I've never had that. And I would say to, to, to all of us, there's no greater joy that you'll ever experience than that moment when you realize you haven't done anything. I mean, you really do realize that. But you get to watch the Spirit bring someone. And you go, oh my gosh. Now I get it when it says that the, the angels in heaven will rejoice over this one soul that has come. The father that goes out for the prodigal son and says, I'll give everything for that son, right? You get it. You're like, oh, that is as sweet as honey. And my prayer for all of us is that, that you have that experience in your life. If not, guess what? God is still using you. You may just be a seed planter or a waterer, right? Uh, but if you get to experience that harvest, there's nothing more beautiful. Here's something that is bitter. I'm in a hospital. Visit number one. The person lying in the bed says to me, well, pastor, I'm in trouble. I've got some things going on in my physical body right now that are pretty scary. He tells me what all's going on. And what's scary? I know I haven't been in church much, but man, since I've been in this hospital bed, I'm praying like crazy. I'm, if I get out of this bed, I'm coming back to church. <laughs> like, okay. This is number two. Pastor, they found a treatment for me. I'm getting better. I think I'm going to make it. Still scary, but I think I'm going to make it. Third visit. Pastor, I'm feeling good again. I'm going to get out. And uh, someday I may come visit you in church. <laughs> the whole thing is bitter to me. And I'll tell you why it's bitter is, first of all, it doesn't, I mean, why are you telling me about going to church? I mean, okay, that's good. But what I'm most interested in your life is what's happening in your relationship with Jesus Christ. My goodness sakes. He's rescuing you from death. And the person says, maybe I'll come check in on him every once in a while. That's bitter. Bitter is when you realize I am the bearer of a word that I take out into the world 
and the honey is to see people who come to know him. The bitter is not all well. There will be people who absolutely resist it and resist it with strength. And, um, you know, I was reading through my, my emails this week and uh, one of our, our college students, you know, shared this with me. This is their first week in school. Sits down, gets into a conversation with a person, and this person right away starts debating her about her faith. And she says, I'm going to stand strong on what I believe no matter what. But guess what she's tasting? Bitter. This person who's doing what? I'll put you down. I'm not going to accept what you have to say. I'm going to push it away. That's bitter. So what John is getting ready to see in chapter 11, it answers the question why it is so bitter. John, you must now continue to do what? Go out to nations and kings and peoples. This word will continue to go out sweet like honey, the gospel. Bitter, the law that will come over people who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he literally feels that in the midst of this vision. Okay? Now, chapter 11 is one of my favorite chapters. But you've got to pay attention to it or you'll miss what it's talking about. Okay? So he's just seeing this. He's just, he, he's just digesting this, uh, this scroll. And something happens. He says, then, then, okay, I've got this scroll digesting. I was giving a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay. So he just got this scroll digested, and somebody gives him a measuring rod. Notice what the measuring rod looks like. A staff. So what's the measuring rod about? Jump back into the Psalms. We all know Psalm 23, right? Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Okay? So when you picture Jesus, part, part of the symbol for a Jesus is his staff, right? By his staff, he does what? Whacks the enemy. <laughs> and with the hook of the staff, pulls us close, you know, to him. He protects his sheep. So this measuring rod is a little bit odd. It's a strange one, but it's meant to symbolize what? We're going to measure the temple, right? And we're going to measure it by what? Who has faith in Jesus Christ? That's how we're going to measure the temple, okay? So when he measures, when he measures it, he says, I want you to measure the court uh, with the altar, uh, but do not measure the outer court, okay? So when you, you know, when you look at pictures of the temple in your, in your Bibles, uh, if you have, you know, a Bible that has a study section in it. Typically, you'll see uh, Herod's temple uh, represented there. If you go back prior to Herod's temple, there were still two courts. There was an inner court and an outer court. The inner court, of course, is where the, the Jews would gather for, for worship. The outer court was, was really did not have as clearly a designated purpose uh, as, as it did in Herod's, uh, after Herod's temple was built. 
Herod's temple, of course, the inner court were those who belonged to God. It was sectioned off, right? So you had the Holy of Holies. You had the inner court where the priests uh, would, would worship. You had the, you had the um, uh, men, and then you had the women. And then the outer court were the Gentiles, right? So in this particular case, when he says, do not measure the court outside of the temple, leave that out, what he's basically saying is that the temple here represents all of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Measure that. Well, what's the measurement? Well, we don't know the measurement. It's just all those who believe in Jesus Christ. Leave the outer court out. These are now those who are outside of salvation. Okay? You kind of get this same, a little bit of the same uh, picture uh, again, back in Ezekiel uh, with the measuring of the temple. Just flip with me back over to Ezekiel, this time chapter 40. I'm doing this because I want you to see the, um, the number of times that you really get these Old Testament images that are being used as symbols in the New Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 40... You kind of get this picture of, of a um, kind of a measuring that's going to be going on. So just read this with me. Just read through verse 5. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me to the city. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which there was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway and he said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon all that I will show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all the things that you see to the house of Israel. And what's going on in, in Ezekiel's time is, Ezekiel, like John, is having a vision. And in this vision, what God does for Ezekiel is he takes him and he sets him up on this mountain and he has this measuring rod. And what he does is he remeasures the temple. And what he's saying to Ezekiel is, Israel is in exile, but I'm going to rebuild my temple. I'm measuring it out because what I'm saying to you, Ezekiel, is I will restore Israel. When you flip all the way back over to the New Testament and in, in the book of Revelation, the same thing is happening. You have this measuring that's going on. And what John is doing is he's immediately thinking, okay, this has happened in history before. The temple was restored. This is a new temple that will be restored. But it's the dwelling of God with man forever. Now, go back to the Revelation. Notice these last words because they're kind of scary. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations. Remember that? Remember I said that that scroll tasted bitter to him? Last words in chapter 10. You must again prophesy about many 
peoples, and nations. 11, chapter 2, or verse 2. It is given over to the nations. Okay? What he's referring to is those outside of faith with Jesus Christ. What are they going to do during this last period of time? All right, here's the answer. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay. What he's picturing is, and I'm just going to say it as plainly as I can, during what we call that, that time and a time and a half of time, during that last period of time, what you have to know about people that are of this world, this cosmos, those who reject Jesus Christ is, they will trample the holy city. What he's guaranteeing you is that during those la that last period of time, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, the, the invisible church of Jesus Christ on earth, the world is going to do what? Come against it in a strong, hard way with the intention of crushing it. We will crush you. Okay. Now we sit here today and we're like, well, you know, what is that going to look like? Uh, well, what it's going to look like uh, in that last period of time is brutal, okay? So I have no illusions. When, I, when I'm talking to Christians today, uh, one of the things that really, really bothers me is uh, kind of the church and the West. When we talk about what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ, sometimes we use language like, oh, it's, gonna, it's wonderful and everything. No, 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 guess what? The world will come against you. You know that young lady that's running me from college? Here's what I want to say to her. This is day one. This is your first week in school. Your professors, guess what? Don't expect them to say, oh, wonderful, you're, you believe the Bible. Oh, no, 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 no. Trample it. Get that Bible out of that kid, right? Get that Bible out of these Christians. The intention is absolutely there to do what? To crush those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So in the last times, what John is saying is we measured the temple, right? Those who belong to Jesus Christ, those who are outside the temple, they will come against in as strong a way as possible the gospel of Jesus Christ with the intent to crush it. And that's what he's seeing. And no wonder that scroll turned bitter in his stomach. Why 42 months? Or does it say 42 months? By the way, 42 months, 1,260 days, right? They're the, they're the same thing. Yes? Why that period of time? It's symbolic. Okay. It is really, it is that half a time. It, it's, it's a little bit different way of symbolizing it. Here's what it actually takes us back to. It takes us back in history to a time when there was a, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, this, is all, this all predates uh, the apostles and Jesus coming into the world. But Antiochus Epiphanes was a, a Roman ruler who decided that he would violate the Jews. In other words, he was going to trample the holy city. So what he did is he came into the, um, the temple, the Jewish temple, and he basically slaughtered a pig on the altar. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament... Um, pigs are what? They're unclean, right? You, can't bring, you could not bring a pig into the temple, 
right? So he brings, not only brings it into it, but takes it to the altar and slaughters it. He's mocking God. His intention is to what? I am going to trample upon this holy city, okay? And uh, not only that, but he brought a great big statue of Zeus and sticks that out in front of the temple. He's mocking God, right? How long did that last? 42 months. Who toppled the statue of Zeus and took Antiochus Epiphanes down and restored order in the temple? God by the name of Maccabees. And so if you buy a Catholic Bible, right, or one that has the uh, Apocrypha in it, there's a first and second book of Maccabees. And it tells the story of how all that took place, and that is what Jews celebrate. When we're celebrating Christmas, they call it Hanukkah. And Hanukkah is the restoration of the temple of that 42-month period during which Maccabees finally comes against the one who is trying to trample the holy city. So it's kind of got that symbolism to it. It definitely is referring to that last period of time, and they're using the symbolism from that Old Testament period where you have the Romans coming and mocking God and actually you know, trying to violate the temple of God. And that's really what he's, he's seeing. Now, during that period of time, this is, this is what is so cool. Verse number three. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And whenever God says, I will grant authority, it means you may be trampling this, this temple, but it's only because I'm allowing it. The ones who trample the temple are under the authority of God. He's allowing it. And that half a time, he's allowing it. But I'm also, during that same period of time, going to rise up my two witnesses. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to just read this and then we'll come back to it next week. It's, here's what it says. They will prophesy for 1260 days. In other words, during that, that period of trampling. Clothed in sackcloth. Read verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So, when we come back next time, these two witnesses are two olive trees and two lampstands. What's that? All right, we'll pick that up uh, next week.